Let me start by thanking Kate and Trudy for organising the conference. Better still, giving me the opportunity to speak at it. It's a great pleasure to be here today. I'm going to talk for about half an hour. I'm sure Kate will tell me if I run over. I'm going to talk for about half an hour on the topic, Ivor Gurney, First War Poet. And unusually for me, I'm actually going to keep the title that I sent in some months ago. Although I have to say that the abstract is a work of complete fiction, and if anyone's read it, they'll notice the difference, probably. Now, First War Poet, of course, sounds like a typo. Um, it isn't a typo. I'm going to come back. All will be revealed in the fullness of time. But before I get to that phrase, I'd just like to think of two others, mainly in relation to Gurney, but also generally as well, two more familiar phrases. The first being war poet, and the other war poetry. Now, these are familiar phrases to us, and yet, because of their familiarity, we may not notice how oxymoronic they are. It's hard to think of two more unlike human activities than fighting a war and writing a poem. One is about destruction, one is about creation, for example. But we rarely notice these things, as I say, because the phrases are so familiar to us. We, uh, and when I say us, I don't just mean the strange creatures who attend conferences on their weekends on the First World War. I mean the general public. And, of course, we receive war poetry and the figure of the war poet through a variety of media. We receive it, hopefully, through the poems themselves, although that's probably not the main way that the general public receives it. We receive it through fiction, we receive it through film, and if only the technology is now going to let me do it, you'll see that we also receive it through popular culture, popular comedy. This is one of those wing in the prayer moments now. Um, You'll remember, I have mentioned Blackadder 4. Blackadder 4 has a war poet in it, Baldrick, Private Baldrick, who um, quotes two of his poems. The German guns consist of the lines boom, 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 boom. That's it. There's another one as well. And it's a little flashback. Now, Gordon Bashart there, the blood, the noise, the endless poetry. That's a rather useful list that he provides for us of what are probably our immediate reactions, our immediate associations with the First World War. But the re I need to go back. The reason why uh, we can be fairly confident that... Oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you want to hear more of that, really. <laughs> Get more serious again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't want to go there. Okay. All right. Best behaviour again then. Now, the reason why the comedians know they're going to get a laugh, the reason why the novelists know they might win the Booker Prize for writing about war poetry, the reason why filmmakers know they'll make a profit at the box office, or at least one of the reasons is that certainly anyone who's English here probably has gone through the same rite of passage that I went through in my early teens in a history lesson, not a literature lesson, when Wilfred Owen gets wheeled out, um, probably Dulcate the Coromess, 
And his, he, we, the poem is wheeled out for two reasons, I think, primarily. The first is to teach us a lesson about the First World War, to promulgate a line that the First World War was a futile war. It's a line which I think is several generations of historians out of date now, but it's still the dominant line in popular culture, and of course Blackadder reinforces that. And then the second wider reason for wheeling out the poem is to teach us the general lesson, in case we didn't know already, that war is a bad thing. Now, there's no prophylactic effect from studying these poems in our early teens because, of course, each generation then goes off and finds and fights its own wars, even while it's able to quote Wilfred Owen. But nevertheless, there's, there's, there's this kind of, I suppose, noble intent. Now, so war poetry then is very much part of our national consciousness. It's, it's lodged there. We can't get rid of it. And I think for that reason, it's very easy to overlook the fact that these phrases, war poetry and war poet, weren't so readily available to the very war which brought them to prominence, to the war of 1914-18. to 18. They're phrases which date from the Victorian period, from the 1850s, but they are not in common usage in 1914. So one of the questions which I try to ask myself and answer, hopefully, in my own work, is what it is that these poets that are subsequently labelled war poets think that they're doing in 1914-18? What relationship do they posit between their own work and, you might say, pre-war, non-war poetry? Um, do they see it as a continuation or as a break? Um, and of course, also, when we think of war poetry, when we think of the figure of the war poet, we tend not just to think of someone who writes poems at the time of war. It comes with a whole host of cultural baggage and cultural authority that the war poet is a kind of truth-teller. War poet has a different kind of authority from other kinds of poet. Now, to what extent did the poets of the Great War recognize this? Were they willing to accept this? to accept these duties and rights, which is a word we'll see in Gurney, and responsibilities. Now, these are all live issues. Um, if you think about the reception of war poetry since 1918, it's noticeable that on the one hand, it's kind of double-edged. On the one hand, war poetry reaches a constituency far in excess of other kinds of poetry. On the other hand, it can be treated as a separate case because it's valorised and celebrated in that way. So that when W.B. Yeats, in 1936, um, edits the Oxford Book of Modern Verse, notoriously, he excludes war poetry altogether. Now imagine if he had decided to exclude love poetry or landscape poetry. It would make a nonsense of the whole thing. So war poetry, even in the act of being valorised, risks being ghettoized. When we think, you know, name the great poets of the 20th century, you probably think of people like Yeats and Eliot. You probably think further, much, much further down the list of people like Gurney and Owen. So why should that be? Um, just to say one other thing in this rather lengthy introduction before I start focusing on Gurney in particular, um, which is that um, I want to make, I suppose, rather the outlandish claim, which I hope this talk will partially begin to justify, that the emergence of the figure of the war poet is the single most radical shift in the way that we think about poetry, and for that matter, the way that we think about aesthetics, for over two millennia. 
And even, I smile even as I say that. But the reason I say it is that we're all familiar with Plato in his Republic excluding poets from his ideal society. And the reason he gives, he says, poets are liars. So they have no place, they're dangerous figures, they need to be exiled. And from, really from Aristotle to Oscar Wilde, there's a long debate trying to counter Plato. And if you take Sir Philip Sidney, who's one of the most articulate anti-Platonists, he comes up with, I think, quite a typical strategy. He says, the poet nothing affirmeth, and therefore never lieth. So he's taking the poetry out of the ethical realm altogether, out of the realm of truth and falsehood altogether. Well, you can see the cost of that kind of strategy. First of all, it separates ethics and aesthetics, but also it risks turning poetry into a kind of amoral ornament. It loses any kinetic force in the world in which we live. It's no longer potentially an ethical, or for that matter, an unethical act. Now, the war poet in 1914 to 18, I think, completely shatters that whole line of argument because the war poet takes Plato on his own terms and says, if a poem is capable of lying, it's also capable of telling the truth. And so what you find in 1914 to 18 is the war poet being ex excluded figuratively from the Republic, in Sassoon's case almost literally with his declaration, and as we'll see in Gurney's case, absolutely literally, he comes to believe, uh, excluded from the Republic not as a liar, but as a truth-teller. And, of course, the idea of the war poet as a truth-teller is a common motif during the First World War. You see it in Sassoon's declaration, you see it in Owen in his draft preface, um, the true poets must be truthful, he says in that preface, you see it in Gurney, when Gurney writes about Sassoon, that Sassoon tells a truth, though perhaps not a profound truth. And there you can see, this, I think something that's also in Owen, the sense that not only are there grades of truth, but there are grades of truth which match grades of poetry. The greater the truth, the greater the poem. And vice versa, for that matter. And let me show you next slide. This is a poem by Ivor Gurney, um, which I think, I hope makes the point. Let me just read this out to you. Spend a while I write, as you can see. I'll read it to you. While I write, war tells me truth. While I write, war tells me truth. As for brave, none might challenge Gloucester's save those dead who have paid prices for preeminence, perhaps have got their pay. But the common goodness of those soldiers shown day after day, and the sight of each hour beauty, brilliant or most grave, stays with me yet. While I am forbidden to write tale of the continual readiness for a bad bloodiness and stead steadiness against hellfire, and strained eyes with humour bright, War told me truth. I have Seven's right of maker, as of Cotswold. War told me I was elect. I was born fit to praise the 300 feet depth of every acre between Tewkesbury and Stroudway, Side and Wales Gate. Now that's a fascinating poem in all sorts of ways. Um, 
but you can see in it, if you thought Wall told me truth, I have seven's right of maker. The poet is a kind of ancient mariner figure. He is singled out and compelled to repeat this story of truth, which he alone uh, has access to. War tells him truth. Um, and of course, that's the other thing about the war, figure of the war poet. The war poet uniquely has access to the truth. Uh, war told me truth. And of course, war tells him truth, but that is what sanctions, that's what gives him the authority to write about his own pastoral landscapes, his own regions, uh, to praise the 300 feet depth of every acre between Tewksbury and Stroudway, and so on. And you can see that line, I was elect. There's a real sense of Calvinist uh, salvation in that. He is the special one. He was born to be special. You know, poets are born, not made. But it's war that, that triggers that kind of authority. It's an absolutely wonderful poem. And it's typical of um, Gurney's attitudes, as we'll see, to the role of the war poet uh, from about 1923 onwards. Okay, um, I said earlier that the war poetry, the war poet, isn't a phrase that's readily available during 1914 to 18. It comes, on the whole, it, it grows very quickly in, in usage after 1918, during the 1920s. And Gurney himself absolutely bears this out. So I'll show you this next slide. Um, this is an envelope. I have to say, for the rest of this talk, a lot of the materials I'm using have come from Philip Lancaster, who's working on the archive. So thank you, Philip. If there are any mistakes there, probably his, not mine. Um, <laughs> um, it, you'll see it's rather smudged, but it's the back of an envelope that, of a letter that Gurney has sent. And it says, you have to take my word for it, but it says, War Poet. It's an envelope that was sent in 1923. And the... Um, it looks like it might say War Poets, and I, I just checked with this with Philip, who assures me it's a full stop and not an S on the end. War Poet, full stop. And Gurney starts using this phrase during 1923 on a regular basis. And Philip tells me that he doesn't put stamps on the envelopes, he writes War Poet on the back. So one of the authorities of the War Poet, one of the, one of the things they're allowed to do is not bother with postage. I hope the Royal Mail will deliver it for them. Because the other thing to say about this is it's absolutely where the seal would be. Um, and so this is Gurney's, what is Gurney, what is Gurney's word, his pledge? How does he give his word, his pledge, his, his sense of identity, his sanction and authority to the contents of the envelope? He writes War Poet. It's a very powerful uh, way of, I, I suppose War Poet becomes a shorthand of everything that Gurney is and all the cultural authority that Gurney has. On the next slide I'm going to show you, is a, a, you can see a gradual working towards, during 1923, working towards the phrase war poet. Um, early 1923, he says, war writer, writer of verse and music. Um, I apologise to all the musicians in the audience, but around this time, Gurney absolutely seems to think that his greatness He's a great composer, but his even greater greatness resides in his, in his verse. Um, but war writer, writer of verse and music, June 1923, refers to himself as infantry writer of verse honourably wounded and infantryman writer of verse and music. This is a very verbose way of avoiding saying war poet and composer. But he gets there on the 10th of August 1923, the first dateable usage of the term, he asks to be granted 
honor of war poet underlined. It's still a strange phrase. It's a phrase that needs stressing because you know, that's what he's working up towards, but it's still not quite his language. And you see in September, he reverts to his old ways. Um, late 1923, an infantryman writer verse claiming place among first five of Western Front writers alive, honorably wounded. Um, I suppose my reaction to that is, is Elizabeth Bishop's reaction when she's told that she is the greatest living woman poet, and she shrugs her shoulders and says, well, what's that worth? Um, you could say the same here, first five of Western Front writers are like, well, you know, what's that worth? Um, and then late 1923, early 1924, from Appeal to the City of London Metropolitan Police Force, which is a great title, whatever the merits of the poem, that is one of the great titles, isn't it? I was war poet, and you see those Tom's, the quotation marks, he still can't quite assimilate the vocabulary. I was war poet, bore arms in heat, rain, keen, and freezing of overseas serving. Will none call that truest honour? And you see the honour further off as well. War poets deserve honour, uh, and of course in Gurney's case he finds very much that he's not getting it, exiled as he is from the Republic in, into the asylum. So. What you find, I myself what was coming next there. What you, what you find in, um, in this period is Gurney consciously figuring himself as a war poet, uh, regardless of the fact that, of course, he's written many other kinds of poems, pastoral poems as well, 80 poems or so, just a couple of years earlier, mentioned war once in its 80 poems or so. Um, but he, he also now, as he's figuring himself as a war poet, is starting to think about canon formation. Where do I belong? among my contemporaries. And here's a document. I think this is a facet. This is a wonderful document. Thank you, Philip, from 1923. I hope you can make that out. I've kind of blown up the relevant bit. And it says along the top, war poets at a guess. And then Gurney has listed a number of war poets. I'll read them out to you because some of it is unclear. I.B. Gurney, Bertie is his middle name, Robert Graves, S. Sassoon, and then three on the same line, each with a number above. F.W. Harvey, his Gloucestershire friend, of course. R. Nichols, Brett Young, and there's an excision crossing out. Owen, open brackets, Wilfred, close brackets. Rupert Brooke is off in the side, the side there. Julian Grenfell, R. Sawley, he's got the name wrong, it's Charles, of course, but he's putting him R. Sawley. And Peter Quinnell with a question mark. As well, Quinnell might have had, because he was born in 1905 and wasn't a war poet. But anyway, um, let's leave that, leave that aside for a moment. Now, there are several things to say about this. The first is, and I'm going to make the claim, which is, I think, unprovable, but also irrefutable, uh, thankfully, that uh, this is a league table. This isn't just a list of names. This is a list of names with the best at the top. And the other, I, I've got one circumstantial piece of evidence, which I'll come to, and one textual piece of evidence, which is that he has numbered those three poets that are in that line together. Why has he numbered them? He has to be numbering them to say in which order they should appear on the list. So Nichols is ahead of Young, who's ahead of Harvey. And you'll see that the, the champion, the Plymouth Argyle of war poets, is I.B. Gurney, who's there at the top. So, um, that wasn't a good example, sorry. <laughs> the champion of all poets is Ivy Gunn. And um, so he's making a great claim there. In a, in a rather coded way, he's making a great claim for himself. But the other thing to say is, if forgetting the league table aspect of it, is that if you, um, 
just take it as a kind of canon and you compare it with other canons of war poetry in the aftermath of the war, this stands up very well to posterity's judgment. There are noticeable absentees, Edward Thomas, but then Thomas was a soldier poet, but he wasn't a combatant poet, so that's why he's not there. Um, Rosenberg, Gurney probably never read. And um, who's here about Blunden? Edmund Blunden. That is curious, because Gurney knows Blunden. I can't quite explain why Blunden isn't there. But otherwise, it's very good. It's very good. And if you think about R. Nichols, Robert Nichols, uh, Osborne, who edits, uh, who puts Gurney in a, an anthology called Muse in Arms, thinks that Nichols is the great poet of the war. Nichols is very fashionable in the aftermath of the war. Gurney knows that's not where Nichols belongs, partly because Gurney himself belongs there, of course. This is just a bit of fun, just to show you how badly poets normally get it. This is Byron a century earlier in 1813. Walter Scott is undoubtedly the monarch of Parnassus and the most English of bards. Uh, if you're north of, from north of the border, you'll raise an eyebrow at that. I should place Rogers next in the living list. I value him more as the last of the best school. Moore and Campbell both third, Sully and Wordsworth and Coleridge, the rest hoi polloi thus. And you can see um, Wordsworth and Coleridge not only having the indignity of sharing a layer with Sully, but also getting squatted on by, by Rogers, Moore and Campbell. And they're only just above that subsistence level of the many. So Gurney, Gurney actually, you know, is, all right, he's in an asylum, he, and he, he doesn't read, he has, what does he have access to, what is he reading, we don't know, we're not always sure. But Gurney has a very good judgment of his contemporaries. I'll just end by working towards where I began. I'll end where I began, which is in that phrase, first war poet, and explain what that means. Um, you can see, so this is 24 now, we've just seen 23. Um, Gurney says that he may be called war poet by sign of Muse in Arms anthology. So because Osborne has printed four of Gurney's poems in the Muse in Arms, Gurney is a war poet. Um, that's, that's the kind of cultural authority which he can lay claim to. Um, so it's rather tenuous at that point still. September 1924, he knows himself now to be the first of the war poets, open brackets, believes it, close brackets, um, Believes isn't quite as strong as knows, I suppose, but you still get the assurance, the confidence there. December 1924, he writes a poem called War Poet. England is coward, coward, and I suffer agonies rightly unheard because she likes sin too well. The uh, rightly unheard is a curious phrase. It's a, a poem that's constantly, as we've seen already, writing appeals to various people. Um, wanting freedom, wanting to be able to commit suicide, all sorts of things like that. Um, but here then he says those appeals are rightly unheard. Because the reason why they're rightly unheard is that when they're unheard, they confirm his sense that he is a war poet. Because the war poet has to be expelled because the war poet exposes the founding fictions of the Republic. So, the, so there's this kind of curious self-reinforcing that the more he complains, the more he must be ignored, and the more his ignoring proves, the ignoring proves that he is the war poet. Um, and then let, I'll end with this, late 1925, the first war poet of England petition, it's a petition to the city of Montreal, bizarrely. Who knows why, I don't know. I, and he's not, so he's not petitioning England anymore, he's given up on us. I write that um, first war poet of England, and have the right of honour, of wound, 
and to have sung also, as none did but I. And I think that's the final claim that Gurney has completely effaced his contemporaries. He is the first war poet, not only in the sense that he's the best, but only also in the sense that he's the pioneer. He is the only one there is. It's the proudest claim it, that, that you can make. And I think gradually we are beginning to come round to Gurney's view on this. Thank you very much.